I want to welcome you this weekend as we're beginning a brand new series, Service or Serve Us. It's going to be a great four-week series talking about the important discipline of service in the family of God. Uh, before we get into today's message, let me just begin by saying this happens to be our anniversary weekend. Uh, 32 years ago, September 16th, uh, Spring Creek Church was born. And uh, some of you were around on that very first Sunday. Many of you were not. But whether you've been with us for a long time or you're really a new member to Spring Creek, we just want to say it's you. It's you that makes Spring Creek what it is. And we're just so grateful for each and every one of you uh, for contributing to this story of what God is doing in this part of the Metroplex and around the world. So as we get started today, would you just bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Father, I, I pray today that this would really be um, the kind of message that might mark a significant shift in all of our lives, especially away from a self-preoccupied lifestyle to one that is focused on other people. I pray, Lord, that you will just do the things that need to be done during our time together. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Show us your ways, and God, give us the willingness to do life your way. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for the longest time in history, people were convinced that the earth stood at the very center of the universe, that, that somehow all the celestial bodies that we see in the sky were in rotation around us. What's more, it was believed that all the other planets were like vagabonds, just wandering from here to there, but not the Earth. People believed that our planet stood still. No orbiting, no rotating. They believed that the earth was the very anchor of the universe, the centerpiece of God's creation, and everything else in the visible sky revolved around us. But then along came Nicholas, Nicholas Copernicus, with his maps and drawings and bony nose and Polish accent. And he had questions like, if the earth doesn't move, then why do the seasons change? And why do some stars appear in the day and then different ones at night? These were troubling questions to the people of his day who thought that the universe revolved around them. Instead, Copernicus postured that the sun was the center of our solar system. Now, you should know most people didn't buy into Copernicus's novel idea that it was the sun and not the earth that was at the center. Then about 50 years later, a like-minded guy named Galileo came along. Galileo agreed with Copernicus, and he continued to try to persuade people that the earth was not the center of the universe. Well, people didn't like that at all. So they had Galileo locked up in prison. On top of that, the church excommunicated him because they considered his ideas heretical. Now, to a lot of people back then, making the sun and not the earth the center of our solar system, it felt like a, a demotion, uh, something that was totally unacceptable unacceptable. And of course, these beliefs came from a total misreading of the Bible because Copernicus and Galileo were right. And what science did for our understanding of the earth, God does for our souls. God points to his son, the S-O-N, and he says, behold the center of it all. Listen to how the Bible describes this. God raised him from the death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. 
and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all of this, Christ rules the church, which means when God looks at the center of the universe, he doesn't look at you and me. When heaven's stagehands are directed to aim the spotlight toward the star of the show, you and I won't need sunglasses because no light's going to fall on us. We are lesser orbs. Appreciated? Yes. Valuable? Absolutely. Love dearly? You better know it. But central? Essential? Pivotal? No, sorry. The world doesn't revolve around us. What I'm saying is God does not exist to make a big deal out of us. We exist to make a big deal out of him. Really, if you want to kind of continue with our analogy, it's the moon that's a better model for what our role's supposed to be. And what does the moon do? It generates no light of its own. Apart from the sun, the moon is pitch black. But positioned properly, the moon reflects the sun, so it appears to shine. And that's what we are. We're, we're sun reflectors, S-O-N, sun reflectors. When the, we reflect the light of Christ, a clot of dirt becomes a source of inspiration. We were made to reflect the glory of the one who's at the center of all things, and that's Jesus Christ. But let's be honest. This is precisely the role many of us fight against because we were born with a default drive set on selfishness. We demand our way. We look out for number one. We make a name for ourselves. And the bottom line truth is this. We don't like being told that it's not about us. And what I'd like to do in today's message is share with you the things that God's been using in my life to get me decentered, and instead focused on the things that really matter. And the first movement of God in decentering our souls is to remind us that living solely for oneself doesn't satisfy. This is how Jesus said it. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What Jesus is saying here is, is really counterintuitive. The best way to lose your life is to actually make yourself the center, to live for yourself, doing whatever you think is best. On the other hand, the only way to save your life and truly live your life is to give it away and lose it for the sake of Christ. And it's true because that's the way life was designed to work. And here's the deal. You can try living a self-centered life, but the result is always the same. Because the more we make our own happiness the focus and center of our life, the more happiness eludes us. The philosopher Eric Hoffer said it best, the search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. Or how about this from Calvin Miller? Those who seek happiness too intensely will have little of it. I mean, let's face it, everyone wants to be happy. The problem is we go about it in all the wrong ways, in ways that practically ensure that we'll never be happy. We think, you know, if I don't put myself first, I won't get what I need. Therefore, I can't be happy. But it's this me-centric orientation that destroys much of what could be good. Marriages are ruined because one or both partners are focused on their own happiness. Successful men and women in the marketplace are ruined every day by their own success, believing they don't need input or support or help from others. Life's troubles get magnified because people believe it's all about them. I tell people all the time, happiness is like a cat. Now, if you ask someone if they own a cat and they say yes, they've never owned a cat because you can't own a cat. You can feed a cat, you can house a cat, you can pet a cat, but you can't own a cat. Cats refuse to be owned. Or how about this? Have you ever tried to call a cat? I mean, they are the most undog-like animal in the universe. They just look at you like you're an idiot. 
Like, haven't you figured out by now what I am? And if you pursue a cat, it just runs from you and it goes and hides under the bed. Now, here's the oddest thing about cats. If you get busy doing something else, it might just come and jump up on your lap or wrap itself around your feet because happiness is like a cat. Pursue it, it'll always be just beyond your reach. But if you get busy doing other things, happiness comes to you. Happiness is always the byproduct of the pursuit of other things. You'll only find happiness when you stop pursuing it as an end in itself. What I'm saying is, is when we make life all about us, all we seem to be successful at doing is pushing happiness further and further away because doing nothing for others is the undoing of oneself. In actuality, we do the most good for ourselves when we do the most good for others. Once again, let me remind you, Jesus told us the life you save is the life you lose. In other words, the life that you clutch, you hoard, you guard, you play safe with is in the end a life worth little to anybody, including yourself. And only a life given away for love's sake is a life worth living. Or how about this from the Apostle Paul? He wrote, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. The truth is, none of us have to be taught to think only of ourselves. We do that without any training whatsoever. We're practically obsessed with getting our own way. It even shows up in the strangest of places like parking lots. So get this, a study was done to determine the average length of time it takes for a person to get in their car and vacate a parking spot at the store. After timing hundreds of drivers, it was determined that it takes on average 32 seconds to get in your car, buckle your seatbelt, check the rearview mirrors, make all the other adjustments you need to make, and then pull out of the spot. But here's the kicker. Even though it only takes 32 seconds to normally exit a parking space, guess how much time it takes to accomplish the same task if another car is waiting to take your parking place? 39 seconds. Now, friends, that's original sin in all its glory. We delay exiting our parking spot an additional seven seconds just to let the other guy know who's boss. Our selfishness knows no bounds. I mean, how many of you have made it your life's ambition to be terribly lonely? You say, well, of course not. That's ridiculous, Pastor Keith. But that's the result of a constant self-orientation. If I'm preoccupied with loving myself and caring only for myself, eventually, I will only have myself to love. Self-seeking breeds isolation. In fact, the better I know myself and the more time I spend with other people, I'm convinced that there's really only two types of people in the world. There's selfish people who know they're selfish and selfish people who don't know they're selfish. The only thing that really separates us is the degree of our selfishness. Because bottom line, that's what it means to have a sin nature. Sin is not primarily about lying, cheating, stealing, lust. Those are just manifestations of our core problem. We're selfish. We want what we want, no matter how it affects others or God. I want my way. That's the way the Bible describes sinfulness. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Wanting my own way is what it means to be a sinner. And the truth is that every one of us has to do battle with a part of ourself that's very selfish. Listen to the great Cambridge scholar, C.S. Lewis. At this very moment, you and I are either committing selfishness or about to commit it or repenting it. You know, I don't like that about myself. 
but I know it's true. I have to fight constantly to win over my selfish human nature. R.C.H. Lenski, the, the famous Bible commentator, he said this, cure selfishness and you've just replanted the Garden of Eden. You know, he's absolutely right. So let's make a pact right now, right when we're getting started. We're in this thing together. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. Each of us has a stubborn inclination in our spirit to want to live for ourselves. If you want to be a healthy, growing individual, you got to lay aside the obsession with the self and learn to focus on others, to move from an inward orientation to an outward orientation. You know, that's why I've always been fascinated by the work of psychologist Bernard Rimland. He's at the Institute for Child Behavior Research in San Diego. He offers a little experiment. He says, make a list of 10 people you know really well. And after each name, either write an H for happy or an N for unhappy. And then go through that same list again, but this time write an S beside every name for selfishness and U for unselfish. So once you've completed your list, then you add up all the categories. You'll have happy selfish, happy unselfish, unhappy selfish, and unhappy unselfish. And Rimland says he does this experiment in all of his university classes, and he's consistently found that the happy selfish category is almost always empty. Does that surprise anybody? But the vast majority of people fall into the happy unselfish category. Then Rimland brings up this really interesting paradox. He says, selfish people are by definition devoted to bringing themselves happiness. But as other people look at their lives, they see they're not very successful at being happy. But those who work at bringing happiness to others are consistently viewed as being happy people. And that leads us to this. There's a difference between rendering a service and being a servant. Serving others, getting away from this me-centered approach to life and adopting an other-centered approach is the key to breaking the grip that selfishness has on our spirit. But it's not just a matter of serving others. It's our attitude as we serve. The truth is some of us serve, but we serve with wrong motivations. We serve so that others will notice us or affirm us or approve of us. Others we give to get. I mean, sure, we, we may give of our time, effort, and energy, but it's always with an unstated price tag. But that just goes to show you, I mean, you can render a service without being a servant. A servant does what they are doing willingly, lovingly, without any expectation of reward or recognition. So how do you know? How do you really know when you're being a servant? Well, you need to pay attention to the following signs because they're always a sure tip off that something's not right. I call these signs that something's gone wrong. Here's the first indicator that something is askew when I feel used and unappreciated. I'll tell you right up front, most of the service you and I perform will be initially unrewarded. Now, certainly God promises that all of our service will be ultimately rewarded, but that doesn't change the fact that between the act of service and that ultimate reward, many times the very people that we serve won't recognize or even appreciate what we've done. That'd be nice to think that in the church of all places, you'd be free from people taking advantage of you or your service or using you in any way, but I know what can happen in churches too. The reality is there will always be some people who will try to use you. And what I've discovered is that when I get to feeling this way, one thing has always and invariably happened. I've turned my focus away from the Lord 
and onto those I'm serving. Remember what Paul told us in Ephesians 6, 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. What's the point? People will disappoint you. They will use you and often not even acknowledge what you do, but you and I don't primarily serve people. We serve the Lord, which is why they say the number one way of knowing whether or not you have a servant's heart is by how you react when you're treated like one. A second attitude that's a sure tip off that something's gone wrong, when I feel possessive and overprotective. To be a servant is to learn to let go. I mean, let's be honest, it's very easy after you've invested a great deal of time and energy into something to feel possessive over that thing. But there are two words that don't belong in a servant's vocabulary, my and mine. The the Bible tells us this in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. As servants, we have to constantly remind ourselves that everything belongs to God, not me. There's no room for attitudes of entitlement when it comes to service. For me personally, I know that one day I'm gonna walk away from this church for the last time. Maybe it'll be because God calls me to something new or maybe because God calls me home. But this ministry that represents 32 years of life investment for me, it's not mine. It belongs to God, it's his church to do with as he desires. Now, there's no question this ministry experience for me has been one of the most amazing things God has ever let me be a part of in all my years of service. And believe me, it would be easy for me to assume that I get to keep on leading it as long as I want. But this is God's church, and I serve at his discretion. And there may come a time when God feels that this church would be better served by another leader. So I have to remind myself of this over and over again. It's not my church. The church belongs to Jesus. You know, in the early days of the ministry, every week as I would drive up to the church building, I would offer my resignation to God. Not because I wanted to quit, but because I wanted to remind myself whose church this is. That's a habit I've begun again in earnest. So no matter the place where God has put you for now, when you start feeling possessive and overprotective over that area, it's a sign that something's amiss in your heart. A third attitude that can easily creep into our service is when I feel disrespect and resentment. Now, for those of you who've been around here for a while, you've heard me tell this story before, but it bears repeating. At our old facility, when we were in the strip mall, we had an ongoing problem with pigeons. They loved to roost in the grid work above the sidewalk outside our main entryway. And if you were with us in that other location, you probably noticed how they loved to leave their little gifts all over the sidewalk and windows. And I hated, I mean absolutely hated, that when first-time guests walk up to the building, the first thing they would see was a sidewalk marked from one end to the other with pigeon poop. So I started cleaning it from week to week. And this was no easy task because it was before everybody had power washers. So I'd get a brush and a bucket of soapy water and start on one end of the sidewalk and scrub on my hands and knees until I reached the other end. And by the time I'd get done scrubbing the length of that front sidewalk, the brush I started with would be worn down to the nubs. So every week I'd have to buy a new brush and start the process all over again. But here's the deal. The whole time I'm down there on my knees, I'm thinking, someone will notice. Someone will stop by and say, the pastor shouldn't be doing this. Here, let me do it. But it didn't happen. It never happened. So I started feeling disrespected. 
And then I find myself getting angry and resentful and thinking stupid things like, you know, if this is all the more the people care about this church, then maybe I just shouldn't be the pastor. And I'd work myself up to a full boil, be ready to quit over pigeon poop. Now, what changed my attitude was what happened the last time I ever cleaned that sidewalk. I was out there typically working up a good and mad, and it was like the Lord asked me, why are you doing this? And I said, because no one else will. And the Lord said, that's not good enough. So I said, it has to be done. And I really heard God say, not with that attitude, because I never told you to do it. You took that on yourself and your attitude shows it. That's the day I stopped cleaning up pigeon poop. Honestly, the whole reason I was feeling so disrespected and resentful was because I was doing something God never told me to do. Here's what I know. The highest reward for our service is not what we get for it but rather what we become by it. If your service to God is souring your spirit like cleaning pigeon poop was souring mine, then really there's something seriously wrong. Folks, it's better to have no ministry in a certain area than ministry that's run by complaining or resentful people. You see, God has designed service in such a way that when we do it with the right attitude and in cooperation with our God-given passions and according to his purposes, that it results in making us Better people, not bitter people. Now listen to this by N.T. Wright, because this really speaks to having a servant's heart. The truly Christ-like leader is known by the ease and spontaneity with which he or she does the little annoying, messy things. The things which in the ancient world, the slave would do. The things which in our world, we always secretly hope someone else will do so we don't have to waste our time to demean ourselves. Now, this quote gets to me. Uh, do I do little annoying, messy things with ease and spontaneity? Not always. M maybe not even most of the time. And it most certainly wasn't true when it came down to pigeon poop. So how do you avoid falling into the pigeon poop trap? Well, here's the best thing I know. Serving like Jesus is the key to he healthy, happy service. To me, the only way to get my attitude right is by looking to Christ. Let me show you Christ's pattern for service. The first thing we see modeled by Jesus is I'll serve without recognition. So right from the get-go, we put our PR department in the hands of God. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to how he said it. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But when you pray, go into your inner room and pray to your father who is in secret. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your father who is in secret. What Jesus is talking about is the discipline of secrecy. And it's a very beautiful thing. Dallas Willard, who's one of the leading authorities or was one of the leading authorities on the spiritual disciplines, he wrote about it. Listen to this. Jesus tells him in the Sermon on the Mount that one of the greatest fallacies of our faith and actually one of the greatest acts of unbelief is the thought that our spiritual acts and virtues need to be advertised to be known. Secrecy, rightly practiced, enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. We will allow him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. The discipline of secrecy cuts to the heart of why we do what we do. Do we serve others so that we'll be admired? Do we give of our time and money so that others will think us generous? Do we pray in public so that we will be respected as mature Christians? 
The discipline of secrecy helps surface all the things in our life that we do so that people will recognize us or appreciate us or admire us. Bottom line, there just needs to be some ways you serve that no one knows about but yourself and maybe those people you're serving. We all need the, the service of hiddenness. The discipline of hidden service crucifies our need for self-importance. It's dying to self. It's living for an audience of one. It's hidden service. Service done for others without regard for the self. That It's really the only thing that helps change that stubborn inclination we have in us to think only of ourselves. Another important factor in serving like Jesus is I'll serve without reluctance. You know, I don't think it's by accident that right before Jesus washed the disciples' feet, the Bible says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. What this verse says in a nutshell is that Jesus had absolute power over all things. Everything falls under Christ's authority. Yet he was willing to do what was considered to be the most menial of tasks to wash his disciples' feet. And he did it without hesitation. He did it without reluctance. Something else, Jesus didn't cop an attitude like sometimes we do. I mean, put yourself in Jesus' place, except now it's maybe with your work team or your kids or your staff or your classroom, and they're just not getting it. They're unwilling to do even the smallest act of service for one another, and each and every one of them thinks they're God's gift to the organization. How do you react to a scenario like that? If you end up doing what they've neglected to do, do you do it without reluctance? Or do you do it in such a way as to make a scene while you're doing it so that no one ever wants to see you do it again? Of all people, Jesus had every right to insist that he, should, he shouldn't have to wash other people's feet. He was God in human flesh. It would only be appropriate that he be served rather than serve. So let me ask you something. If Jesus had washed the disciples' feet reluctantly, would it have had the same effect? If the entire time Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he complained how they should really be the ones doing this, that this was beneath his position as teacher and Lord, even though that would have been completely and entirely true, it would have so tainted it that the lesson would have been lost forever. It was powerful because it was done without reluctance. A third attitude we see in Jesus, if you want to serve the way Christ did, I'll serve without reservation. You know, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, all 12 of his disciples were present. And in particular, the Bible makes a point to single out one of them. The Bible says the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So get this, even though Jesus knew Judas was about to betray him, he didn't hesitate to serve him or any of the others. What he did, he did without reservation. Will you serve anyone and everyone God asks you to serve? Or are there certain people that you would say to yourself, not that one, over my dead body? You see, Jesus served not just Judas, he served Peter, who would deny even knowing Jesus in a matter of hours immediately after this. In fact, all the disciples would desert Jesus in his most desperate hour. Would you serve someone you knew was going to abandon you when you needed it most? And here's the final characteristic that really marked Jesus' service, and that is, I'll serve without restriction. Jesus wrote this, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
You know, I really think Jesus threw the disciples a curveball with this one. I mean, look at what he said. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, what do you expect him to say next? I washed your feet, so you should wash my feet. But he doesn't say that. Why not? Because that would have been an honor. I mean, who wouldn't stand in line to wash Jesus' feet? And for the disciples who just received a foot washing from Jesus, they would have been eager to return the favor. Instead, Jesus said, because I've done it for you, you should do it for others. In other words, a true servant doesn't serve out of a debtor's ethic. You did this for me, now I owe you one. Jesus' point is, don't do for me what I've done to you, do for others as I've done for you. In other words, because Jesus showed his love and grace to an undeserving creature like me, it's now my privilege to show that same love and grace to another sinner just like me. I'm talking about basin theology. You aren't familiar with that term? Well, let me acquaint you. Remember what Pilate did when he wanted to rid himself of the obligation to have anything to do with Jesus? He called for a basin of water and he washed his hands of the whole matter. On that same evening before his death, Jesus called for a basin to wash the feet of his disciples. All of our lives come down to this basic question, which basin will you choose? You see, see, life is really a choice between those two basins. If you're like Pilate, you wash your hands of situation and people so that you can excuse your non-involvement with them. You tell yourself, this is not on me. It's got nothing to do with me. It's not my job. You wash your hands of people and situations. Or you're like Jesus, and you get out your basin, and you wash the feet of those who don't deserve it. You don't make excuses. You don't find yourself an out. You just do what needs to be done with a servant's heart. Now, I'll be the first to admit that these attitudes don't come easily. The real question is, are we willing to do the ordinary and the messy? Remember what N.T. Wright said? The truly Christ-like leader is known by the ease and spontaneity with which he or she does the little, annoying, messy things. So let me wrap up with this story. Doug Nichols, he served with Operation Mobilization in India back in 1967. He was a missionary. He wanted to help bring the gospel to a tribe of people in India. But no sooner had he arrived that he contracted tuberculosis, and it forced him into a sanitarium for months to recover. Being so new to India, he hadn't yet learned to speak the local language. But while he was in the hospital, what he tried to do is give Christian literature written in the local language to patients and doctors and nurses. Every one of them politely refused. He wrote this, I sensed many, were, uh, many weren't happy about a rich American, to them all Americans are rich, being in a free government-run sanitarium. They didn't know I was just as broke as they were. So every night around 2 a.m., Nichols said he would wake up coughing because, you know, tuberculosis, tuberculosis is a lung disease. Once during a coughing spell, he noticed that there was an older, sicker patient across the aisle trying to get out of bed. The man would sit up on the edge of the bed. He would try to stand, but in weakness, he would fall back into the bed. And Nichols, and he, or Nichols he, he, he didn't understand what the guy was trying to do. But he could tell that when he fell backwards into the bed, the man began to cry. By the next morning, it was obvious what the man had been trying to do. He had been trying to get up to go to the bathroom. Nichols said the stench in the ward was awful. And all the other patients were yelling insults at that man. 
Angry nurses moved him roughly from side to side as they cleaned up the mess. One nurse slapped him. The old man just curled up in a ball and wept. The next night, Nichols woke up again in the middle of the night coughing, and once again, he noticed the man across the aisle trying to stand. Nichols wrote this, I don't like bad smells, and I didn't want to get involved. But I got out of bed, and I went over to him. When I touched his shoulder, his eyes opened wide with fear. I smiled, I put my arms under him, and I picked him up. He was very light due to old age and advanced TB. I carried him to the washroom, which was just a filthy small room with a hole in the floor. I stood beside him with my arms under his armpits as he took care of himself. After he finished, I picked him up. I carried him back to his bed. As I laid down, he kissed me on the cheek, smiled, and said something I couldn't understand. Nichols said the next morning, another patient woke me and handed me a hot cup of tea. He motioned with his hands that he wanted some of my literature. As the sun rose, other patients approached me and indicated that they too wanted the booklets that Nichols had tried before to distribute. Throughout the day, nurses, interns, and even doctors all asked for Nichols' literature. Weeks later, there was an evangelist who spoke the local language who came to visit Nichols in the hospital. And as he talked to the other patients and staff, he discovered that several of them had trusted Christ as their Savior as a result of reading that literature. But what did it take to reach these people with the gospel? It wasn't Nichols' ability to speak their language or a powerful gospel sermon. It took a trip to the bathroom. It was a humble act of service. You know, I think sometimes we forget that the gospel is first and foremost a demonstration, not a presentation. All it took to reach these people with the love of Christ was a willingness to get his hands dirty and express love in a practical way. Friends, I just can't help but think in a world that is absolutely devoted to serving themselves, that these acts of service, that these, this willingness to get involved in in the messiness of other people's lives, to serve in ways that don't call attention to us, but instead stay focused on the need, that that kind of service will win a world back to God. And that's what God is calling us to. God is calling us away from our selfishness, away from our sinfulness, and toward this approach that believes in all sincerity that the way of transformation is to serve, is to make a difference, is to care, is to passionately do for people the things that they need done. So I'm praying that throughout this series, God is just going to do a revolution in my life and hopefully yours too, that we'll begin to see service in ways that we never have before and that each and every one of us would simply want to do something beautiful for God. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this time we've had together, for this reminder that selfishness is what marks a sin nature. And we all have a sin nature, so we're all selfish. God, it's just a matter of degree. Some are more selfish than others, but we all have this bent to want our own way. What you have given us and what Jesus challenged us with is this idea that to really gain life, we lose life. And when we just hang on and cling to life, that's when we lose it. And so he reverses the paradigm. He reverses the way we tend to look at life. We tend to think that if I don't prioritize me and take care of me, then happiness is always going to be beyond my grasp when really the opposite is true. That when we hazard our lives in your service, 
that when we do things for others and we do this willingly with a, with a pure heart and we do it in cooperation with what you're calling us to do, that God, you just do amazing things. Like what happened for Nichols when he went to a group of people and all it took was not the ability to speak their language, not a powerful sermon, but a demonstration of love to reach a people that this person is somehow different and I want what they have. So God, I pray that we would be like the moon, that we would reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in the simplest acts of service we offer in your name. I ask it all in his name, amen. I'm just so grateful for all of you who each and every week join us, whether you're joining us live at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning or sometime later in the week. These are an opportunity for us to continue to invest in our spiritual life and our connection with uh, God and our connection with one another. Now, if this message has been meaningful to you, please share that with us in your comments, like it, share it on social media. That's the greatest compliment you can pay to Spring Creek Church is that this meant a lot to me. I want it to impact the friends that I have. We're gonna continue in this series next week, so I hope to see you back then. God bless you and have a great week.